Hello, everyone. We thank you for joining us for today's webinar. Want to let you know uh, as you file in, you're in the right place. Just going to wait another minute or so as more people get situated and uh, we'll begin presentation again in a little under one minute. Hello again, everyone. Thank you for joining us, letting you know you're in the right place for the webinar on accident investigations. Going to let uh, people have a little more time to file in and get going in a little less than 30 seconds. Hi, everyone, and welcome to today's safety and health webcast, Accident Investigations, Finding and Eliminating Root Causes, sponsored by J.J. Keller. My name is Kevin Drulli. I'm an associate editor with Safety and Health Magazine, and I'll be moderating today's session. Thanks for joining us. We hope you all are safe and well. In a few minutes, we'll start the presentation, but first, let's review some preliminary items. The views of today's speakers and organizations are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the National Safety Council or Safety and Health Magazine. Any mention of a commercial enterprise, product, or publication does not mean the council or magazine endorses those items. At the end of today's webcast, we'll conduct a question and answer session. To ask a question, simply click the Q&A button at the bottom of your screen, type your question, and click the Send button. Feel free to ask your question at any time during the presentation. You don't have to wait for the question and answer session to begin. We'll try to answer as many questions as possible but because of the large number of participants today, we might not get to every question. Any unanswered questions will be forwarded along to today's speakers. At the end of the webcast, you'll be asked to complete a brief evaluation survey. I'll let you know more about that after the presentation. This webcast is archived, so you can access it after today's live event. To view this webcast and all of our past webcasts, go to safetyandhealthmagazine.com events. With that, let's go ahead and get started. Our speakers today will be Edwin Zaleski and Derek Plowden. Edwin is a senior editor at JJ Keller. He researches and creates content on a variety of safety-related topics and contributes to a number of products. His specialty areas include walking working surfaces, powered industrial trucks, and injury illness record keeping. Derek is a technical editor for JJ Keller's content and consulting services. He responds to customer questions and provides content for several publications specializing in topics including construction regulations, ergonomics, and PPE. Gentlemen, we thank you both for being here today. Edwin, whenever you're ready, go ahead and take it away. Thank you so much. Thank you everyone for joining us. Uh, today's webcast is brought to you by the JJ Keller Safety Management Suite, which is a solution that works as hard as you do. Uh, the Safety Management Suite streamlines, streamlines compliance at every level of your business and makes it easy to develop, implement, and maintain your safety programs. And because your success is our priority, today's attendees will be offered complimentary access to this resource called Safety Management Suite. And again, on behalf of JJ Keller and our safety management suite, thank you for joining us. Now today we're obviously talking about accident investigations, incident investigations, and getting at the root causes. But first I want to highlight the difference between immediate causes or what we call surface causes and those deeper root causes. An immediate cause, a surface cause, is usually either a workplace condition or an employee action behavior that leads to an accident. <clears throat> so think of a condition as something like water on the floor or a behavior like using a damaged tool. Of course, the problem is that cleaning up the water or replacing a tool doesn't necessarily prevent that situation from arising again. The root causes are those factors that allowed a situation to occur. These might be things like inadequate procedures or the failure of a supervisor to enforce safety rules. Now, correcting root causes is a lot more challenging than just fixing those immediate causes, but those root causes have to be addressed, or you're probably going to see the same type of situation arise and the same type of accidents in the future. Now, some state OSHA agencies may require employers to investigate accidents, and federal OSHA, of course, expects you to identify and eliminate hazards, which requires an investigation. 
But beyond that, we've talked to a lot of safety professionals and on why we want to investigate. A lot of you probably have personal stories involving serious injuries, uh, maybe to a family member. And that's what encouraged you to enter the safety profession. So we know that you want to keep your employees safe. It's not just about compliance. It's about safety. Well, any serious incident, of course, makes people wonder what went wrong. And the investigation should answer that question. Often that's the surface causes and the conditions in the workplace. But then finding that root cause helps you answer the question, how do we prevent this from happening again? I'm going to take an example. Let's suppose an employee was injured by slipping on ice in the winter. Uh, here in Wisconsin, we've got some good snow coming. Uh, the immediate cause or surface cause would be the ice on the sidewalk. And that's easy to fix. A little bit of sand or salt will take care of it. But the root causes are usually a system failure. So in this simple example, finding the root cause might involve asking questions like, why wasn't this problem identified sooner? Do you need to review your procedures for inspecting sidewalks in the winter? Was the person responsible for doing those inspections maybe on vacation and the designated backup didn't step in? So these are the procedural steps, the system things. And if you can identify and address those and fix the system, you can better prevent future accidents. Now, a lot of accidents, of course, result from the confluence of multiple events. There may be some cases where there's only one cause. And in a lot of cases, of course, there might be one primary cause, the biggest factor. But usually there's more than one factor. Those surface causes only explain the how of an accident, the ice on the sidewalk. You'll need to keep digging, looking for the why as well as the how. So let me take an example again of a simple car accident. Let's suppose a driver is using a cell phone and drifts out of his lane and causes a minor accident. Now, the analysis here seems pretty simple. We'd probably find that using a cell phone distracted the driver. And if he'd stayed focused on the road, the accident probably would have been avoided. That tells us how the accident happened. But again, the next level is determining why it happened. And in this case, why was the driver using a cell phone when he was behind the wheel? I mean, even if state law doesn't prohibit using a cell phone while driving, we all know this is dangerous or we should. You might have a policy on it. So some potential root causes might be that he just honestly did not know that using a cell phone while driving can be dangerous. It's hard to believe he didn't know that, but we'll consider the possibility. Or maybe he thought he could use the phone safely while driving. Maybe he'd done it many times before without an accident and he got kind of complacent about it. Well, to prevent similar incidents from occurring in the future, we could adopt a rule that using a cell phone while driving is prohibited. Okay, seems simple, but there may be larger issues involving distracted driving. Other things would be eating while driving, looking through your purse while driving. Uh, or even employee attitudes, lax attitudes or complacency that we could be missing there. Uh, and this driver, perhaps we had a rule and he was ignoring it anyway. Now, if the driver really didn't know the dangers of using a phone while driving, then training might be the solution. But if you think he was aware of the po possible risks and ignored the danger, then we probably have some other kind of root cause and we need to investigate. So I'm going to turn it over to Derek to talk about investigations. Thanks, Ed. Yeah, that's a great point. Usually there's something deeper going on there. And we'll, of course, talk about that uh, as we move on throughout the presentation today. But if you're going to investigate accidents and your misses, you need to be prepared so that you can get on the scene quickly. Uh, you might even create a written plan or policy to clarify who's responsible for each part of the investigation. As Ed said, the big thing here is we want to talk about preparing to investigate, right? And at a minimum, uh, you'll want a list of what to do when you arrive. For example, you may need to take photos. You might have to collect some air samples, make notes about what records to check. Uh, you might even need to measure distances, identify witnesses, uh, and then also, of course, be ready to document any interviews uh, that you conduct, things like that. So, You'll want all the tools you'll need to perform those duties. 
Uh, it's best to know what you'll need to investigate before you choose what tools you need. Again, that's just going to come from analyzing the incident carefully or the accident carefully, whether it's a near miss incident or any other accident that comes up. Uh, you know, that'll help you come up with the list of items that you'll need. Now, the people involved should understand their roles, of course, and should be ready to go as soon as they get the call. They should be able to, you know, grab their attention instantly allow them to understand that there's an investigation going on. They should be able to know what's going on and then, of course, grab an investigation kit uh, with everything they need to get started. Now, if you need help with a written plan, of course, as I had mentioned earlier, the Safety Management Suite has an accident reporting investigation plan template. Uh, since Safety Management Suite is sponsoring today's event, we'd like to offer all of our attendees access to our safety uh, plan templates at no cost to them. Uh, to help simplify your safety efforts, the JJ Keller Safety Management Suite offers 120 plus pre-written safety plan templates. Uh, just choose your topic, fill out the form, and in minutes you'll have a comprehensive written plan uh, that's built for your business. Of course, I did want to mention some root causes. Of course, we're getting some questions in. Some root causes of incidents are typically broken down uh, into three levels. And so when we think about those different levels, uh, you wanna think about any direct or even indirect causes and then any basic causes. A direct cause is usually the result of some sort of contact with an object, maybe a forklift that comes in contact with a rack holding some materials. Uh, something like this may be the result of one or more unsafe acts, although that's not always the case in many situations. There might be something unsafe within the environment or even within, within the conditions of your workplace or even both that might play a role. Um, some of these unsafe acts and conditions are really the indirect causes or symptoms that I had mentioned earlier. You know, there might be something underlying, maybe an employee um, thinks that they are allowed to use their phone while driving a forklift. Hopefully that's not the case, but um, if they do, it might be something like management or supervisors not necessarily enforcing the rules as well as they're supposed to. Uh, so do keep that in mind uh, when you're going through an investigation. Moving on to training, of course, everyone on the investigation team should be trained. There are lengthy courses available on this, so we're not going to cover all the details today, but obviously the investigators will need to understand their responsibilities. What do I mean by that? I mean, they'll need to know when and how to start an investigation. That may sound simple, but if you get a near mess report, but if that investigator has a meeting, well, when should the investigation start if that investigator is in a meeting? Uh, if an employee was injured and sent to a hospital, the investigation would probably start immediately. But what if a near miss could have caused a hospitalization? Uh, there might be a serious hazard to workers that should be addressed right away rather than waiting until later. The point is, is that you shouldn't delay the investigation of a serious hazard just because the injury was not that serious. Uh, it could have been. And that's something that you want to think in the back of your head. Um, of course, in all sorts of situations, even near misses. Uh, or any incidents like that. Team members also need to know what to look for and how to gather evidence. And you'll want to document any findings that you have and of course, offer any corrective actions to prevent any incidents. Of course, Ed and I, we're using the word accident and incident interchangeably. So that's also something you wanna keep in mind. Uh, really decipher between the two. An accident is usually something that happens at random, meaning we never really expected it to happen. It was something that was preventable per se, but. To OSHA, most incidents uh, are preventable, meaning that um, in your workplace, at least, you should be able to pre prevent most incidents that happen. So just something to keep in mind, again, as we go throughout uh, today's webcast. Moving on, in addition, you might wanna consider training workers about the investigation process. Let them know that if an accident or near miss happens uh, in your workplace, the company will investigate. And then beyond that, let them know that the purpose of the investigation is not to assign blame. The purpose is to prevent any future accidents from happening so they don't get hurt. Now, you might reassure them that if they witness an accident, they'll be interviewed, but that doesn't mean that they're in trouble. So go over that process so everyone understands how and why investigations are conducted uh, so that they understand what kind of questions will be asked and how the information will be used. This might also be a good time to remind everyone that preventing accidents is better than investigating them and remind them to report any hazards or concerns before they have to act uh, as a witness in any sort of interview. 
Well, that, that's a good point, Derek. And I want to reiterate that, you know, we sometimes say that accidents happen, but as we were saying, if you can address those conditions and actions in the workplace, you probably can prevent an accident. And the hard part here, again, is we don't want to place blame. So if you are providing training for everyone, again, explain why you investigate accidents and make sure they understand the purpose is not to place blame. The major reasons are, of course, to identify and eliminate hazards. You know, investigating also shows your company's concern for safety, and you can highlight your commitment to protecting workers. You might even explain that, you know, an injury means something went wrong and you want to know why so you can stop it from happening again. Uh, if someone made a mistake, that's OK. Mistakes are understandable, but we want to prevent that mistake from occurring. Accidents aren't always the employee's fault, but some employees and in some workplaces, they think they're going to be held responsible. They think they're even going to get fired. Um, but let them know if they didn't intend to hurt anyone, uh, you know, they didn't start a fight here. Uh, we're not actually talking workplace violence, something like that. It was a mistake. It was something they've done. It was something they hadn't been taught, whatever it might be. Uh, then be clear that your focus is on training and safeguards to protect everyone by preventing future accidents. Okay, knowing all that, we're going to go through the accident investigation steps. And real briefly here, uh, as Derek said, there's entire day-long courses on investigations. But in a general sense, you first want to control the scene and make sure no one else is in danger. But you do need to preserve the scene so you can figure out what happened. And that might include things like blocking off an area to isolate a danger. And before you start removing equipment or materials, you know, we want to get photos and things like that. That leads us to collecting evidence, taking photos, maybe drawing sketches. So you can get measurements on clearances, distances. Uh, a photo doesn't necessarily show how far apart some objects were. You might need information on the position of tools or equipment. Uh, were there housekeeping conditions? Were there air quality issues? What were the background noise levels that might have uh, prevented someone from hearing a shouted warning? Those kinds of factors. And of course, you'll interview employees and check records of things like maintenance or other inspections. You can also check your injury logs for similar cases or, again, reports of near-miss incidents. Anything that might relate to the accident and help you identify, again, both the immediate causes as well as the root causes. And when we collect evidence, we want to focus on the facts. Now, it's normal for our brains to start connecting dots and start drawing conclusions, but do recognize that and try to avoid making assumptions about what, what happened, because those assumptions could cause you to overlook something important. Related to that, when you're conducting interviews, you simply ask what happened and let the witness tell a story in their own words. Asking open-ended questions is best, you know, what happened next? The key here is to avoid any leading questions. A leading question might cause someone to make something up in an attempt to answer your question. Uh, witnesses might even give their opinions, which is okay, but avoid questions that suggest a specific answer. Um, for example, don't say something like, do you think the forklift driver wasn't paying attention? That's a leading question and it suggests an answer. It might also sound like an accusation that makes the witness defensive. And remember, this is odd, but statements from multiple witnesses might seem to be contradictory where both of those statements cannot possibly be true. Well, this doesn't necessarily mean that either one is lying. It could be how they remember things, they saw things from different angles, they noticed different things. Now it could be, that uh, maybe one of the witnesses is trying to deflect blame from himself or a coworker, and that's a possibility. We will discuss that a little bit later this today. Thanks, Ed. Good points. You might need to also interview uh, people who are not directly involved or who did not see the accident happen. The worker's supervisor is one example, but coworkers might even have some information as well. To get the most out of interviews, you may need to understand some basic psychology, though. Again, what I mean by that is you don't want to ask leading questions or make accusations, as Ed had mentioned. But it's worth noting that people being interviewed might not be entirely forthcoming about their responses or what they have to say, especially if someone was seriously injured. And some witnesses might try to downplay the responsibility or even try to, def to deflect any sort of responsibility. 
basically some people may be reluctant to say something negative about a coworker or even a supervisor. They might not flat out say that someone else made a mistake or could have done something better. Again, avoid asking leading questions. This will help reduce the risk of any ambiguity or any uncertainty in a person's response. And as Ed had said, ask, well, what happened next? Um, as opposed to maybe saying something like, well, we heard the forklift driver wasn't paying attention. Again, leading question that might indicate that you're trying to lead on uh, the person into thinking that there's a right answer. We'll give a few examples. So let's suppose that a forklift operator stopped suddenly and the load that he was carrying slid off the tines and nearly struck a pedestrian. You might hear statements like, well, I didn't see the forklift or maybe the pedestrian just came out of nowhere. Now that may be how the witness remembers things, but there's probably something else going on here. And of course, follow-up questions might be along the lines of what were you focused on at the time of the accident? Maybe the pedestrian was checking his cell phone and didn't see or hear the forklift, or maybe the forklift was going too fast, or maybe the driver failed to stop and sound a horn uh, at an intersection. Like we said before, there could be several contributing factors here, and you'll want to identify them all. And this is, of course, where interviews with coworkers might help identify a pattern of behavior. Maybe others have reported the forklift going too fast, or maybe another worker uh, had a near miss. Along those same lines, you'll wanna watch for any possible blame shifting. For example, the forklift operator might say, well, the forklift couldn't stop in time, rather than just saying I was driving too fast. Well, if the brakes on the truck are working, um, then a statement that the forklift couldn't stop is an effort to shift blame to the machine as opposed to shifting blame onto the driver. And even a statement like the load was unstable shows that the operator recognized the problem, but he's probably not going to say, I was carrying an unstable load, or I had failed to make sure that the load was stable when I had put it on the pines. Now, this is a natural human tendency to shift blame from ourselves. Uh, that's okay, and you don't need to press the issue during the interviews, but it's something that you want to be aware of and keep in mind as you go over the interview notes. Now, as we said, people may be reluctant to blame a coworker or a supervisor, or even blame themselves, maybe. If, you, if, if it keeps getting worse, like you know, I don't remember, or I don't know. Maybe the witness really doesn't remember, but again, that might be an attempt to avoid some responsibility or shift blame onto someone else or something else. Yeah, I've, I've talked to safety professionals who said they're surprised at how much psychology is, actually gets involved in safety. And, and that's why we're trying to give you a little background and we'll get into it more later. You know, since we've introduced a scenario here, I wanna give another example, and I'm gonna use a forklift again. Let's say a forklift driver was going too fast for conditions, and while he went around a corner, an unbalanced load slid off the tines. Now, we'll say no one was injured, but the incident <clears throat> should hopefully get reported as a near miss because it could have caused a serious injury. All right, so we've jumped ahead a little bit. We've made some assumptions about the immediate causes, that the operator was carrying an unstable load, and that he was driving too fast. But now to get to the root causes, we need to know why those conditions occurred. And that's a little more complicated. I mean, why was the operator in a hurry? Why didn't he take the time to secure the load? Now, I like using forklifts as an example because the OSHA regulation specifies retraining if the operator was involved in an accident or near miss. So again, as Derek said earlier, uh, we should consider if training was a factor. I mean, if the operator didn't know the rules, uh, maybe he couldn't recognize an unstable load, something like that, then training would be the solution. But it's also possible that production demands maybe encouraged the operator to cut safety corners. Maybe he knew the load was unstable, but he didn't think he had the time to secure it. Uh, maybe the manager had seen him driving too fast before or never enforced the rules or, or even worse, told him to speed things up a bit. Well, these are the systemic problems that get to why an accident happened. And again, these involve the human factors. There are motivations for these unsafe behaviors, underlying reasons for them. Now, if the operator is given refresher training, but the root causes don't get addressed, he continues to be motivated to go too fast, then there's still probably going to be another incident. 
Now, when you do an investigation, you need to review, in this case, the operator's training records, maybe his disciplinary records. And if, as we said, coworkers say he's always ripping around the corners pretty quickly, but there's no evidence the manager ever talked to him about it, that's a problem. So interviews with the operator, the manager, others in the area, they can identify a pattern and there should be documentation of the reminders or the refresher training. So if you identify an ongoing problem that people were aware of and it was never addressed, that's an issue that needs to be fixed. So my point here is we sometimes hold employees accountable for the accidents, but if the supervisor is not enforcing the rules or worse, encouraging violations, then the supervisor shares some responsibility. We don't blame the employee here. Again, if the supervisor has berated the driver for going too slow or taking too much time, well, retraining the operator is probably not going to fix the root cause. In this case, maybe it's a manager who needs some additional training. Yeah, that's a great point, Ed. And when we're talking about what we need to do next, I mean, we really are focusing on examining the evidence and communicating it, right? So once all the evidence is collected, the next steps are, of course, easy to list. They're on the slide. It's easy to read them, but they're pretty hard to do. And they include going over the data to determine the root causes. What, what root causes did you find? Is there something telling about that? Maybe conditions aren't adequate, things like that. Then, of course, communi communicating those findings. Take your findings to your safety committee, safety professional, anyone that you can, so that way they can help communicate your findings and get an action plan right away. Then, of course, developing and implementing those corrective actions and then monitoring the corrections to make sure that they're actually working. Now we do want to highlight the importance of monitoring the corrective action to make sure it's effective and that it isn't creating any new or different hazards. As an example, if the solution was changing to a different type of personal protective equipment, you'll wanna ensure that that PPE is actually used and that it actually solved the problem and that it doesn't cause new problems. Of course, the corrective actions you select will depend on the hazards and even the resources available. For instance, rather than trying to find a new type of PPE, maybe it's time to look at possible engineering controls or work practice controls to implement instead. Root causes will influence the corrective actions, but don't just think about physical causes. Also think about motivational causes. Those are going to be harder to identify and correct but they will need to be fixed. Otherwise, the root causes will still be a factor and they may cause future accidents. Now with that, you may need to also ask why questions several times to really drill down to a root cause. Like why did the employee fall? Well, he slipped on a wet floor. Okay, well, why was the floor wet? Turns out that there's a leaking pipe. Okay, well, so why wasn't the pipe recorded or fixed? And so on and so forth. You get the idea, right? Again, corrective actions like retraining may be necessary, but you may still need to work with the manager to ensure that that training gets enforced on a daily basis. And there's a lot of potential causes for accidents from weather conditions to faulty equipment to even incomplete procedures. There could be breakdowns in communication or any number of other reasons too that you'll wanna also keep in mind. Your investigation should cover the who, what, where, and when of the incident. We've noted that immediate causes addressed how an accident happened, but we really want to know why an accident happened. Although we say that accidents do not just happen, uh, that's not entirely true. I know I had mentioned that earlier, but I mean real accidents that weren't planned by anyone, but um, equipment can fail or break, which creates an unexpected situation, something like that, right? But there should be safeguards in place to protect employees if that happens. Other than that, maybe something was overlooked that could have been done to prevent the incident. And this really gets to the why an accident happened. And I'll pass it off to Ed to talk about what to look for. All right. So when you do your root cause analysis, what are you looking for? Obviously, you should be looking at physical conditions, you know, conditions in the workplace, of course. But you should also be looking at employee actions. And the key there is the underlying motivations for those actions that I hinted at earlier. So if an immediate cause was an equipment failure or breakage, like Derek said, uh, the root causes might be lack of maintenance or failure of a safety protocol that was supposed to protect employees if there was a failure. And while we want to avoid blaming the employee, 
uh, you know, a lack of paying attention, a lack of focus can certainly be a factor. But as with the example we gave of a forklift driver carrying an unstable load, what was the real cause or motivation? Was the employee not properly trained? Hey, maybe people who stacked the pallet needed training on how to do that better, how to wrap it appropriately. Uh, were, were people under pressure? Were they encouraged to take shortcuts? So the point is, we can acknowledge that the employee's actions, behaviors played a role, but that doesn't mean we're placing all the blame on the employee if there's some other underlying reason or motivation for that employee's accident. It doesn't have to be something we agree with. We have to acknowledge though that it might exist. So we've also listed the step of communicating the investigation results and the step of identifying possible corrective actions. Well, which one comes first? Now, depending on your company policy or even on the seriousness of the incident, you might recommend corrective actions or you might report your findings to a group and work together on developing corrective actions. I mean, if this is a very expensive fix, it's probably not something you're going to authorize on your own. So in a sense, which comes first kind of depends on who is going to be involved in implementing those corrections. You might need a group discussion to evaluate solutions and then to assign responsibility for implementing them. As an example, I've been hinting that a supervisor might need to take a more active role in enforcing safety rules and discouraging shortcuts. Well, that's a perfectly legitimate corrective action, but it's probably not something that you as a safety professional can implement. You're gonna need help from some uh, higher level managers. Eventually you'll put together this report or investigation summary, and this will describe the incident along with any interim steps you've taken to protect employees, whether it's blocking off the area or other short-term solution. You'll also document the suspected causes, including both the surface causes and your, your root causes. And these findings will be supported or should be by documentation, could be maintenance records, statements from witnesses, photographs of the scene, things like that. And of course, then you'll have a list of recommended actions to prevent the incident from occurring again. Now, to give an example, let's suppose an employee suffered an eye injury because he wasn't wearing safety glasses. Your investigation finds that he was trained, he saw signs that safety glasses were required in the area, and he even had his safety glasses with him. So what happened? Well, maybe he felt that the rules didn't apply to him. We'd have to address that. Or maybe the glasses were uncomfortable and kept fogging up. He couldn't see, so he took them off. Well, in that case, a solution might be a new type of safety lens with anti-fog treatments. Maybe we need new ventilation to, to eliminate the need for safety glasses, whatever it might be. So now it's time to select some corrective actions, right? And when you're suggesting any corrective actions, you want to try to follow the hierarchy of controls, as you see on this slide. And this means that you want to eliminate the hazard if possible. For example, do we really need that hazardous chemical or could some other product be used? Or can we install engineering controls such as ventilation? And if we can't do that, can we use administrative controls to reduce the time employees are exposed? You know, can we shift schedules around or even schedule time away to reduce exposure? Things like that. Of course, at the last line of defense, PPE should be used. Uh, we just gave an example involving safety glasses, and sometimes you can't just eliminate the need to wear them, but possible engineering controls should be evaluated. We do see that some companies heavily uh, rely on PPE, even though there could be some fairly inexpensive engineering controls available to them. And keep in mind that you may need to implement changes at more than a single level, uh, depending on the root cause. For example, maybe the workers need a new type of safety glass, but the manager also needs training on enforcing the rules. Now, just a little bit of a different example. Let's say you found an unguarded machine that was the cause of an injury. Obviously, you'll need to guard that machine according to OSHA standards, uh, but you'll have to ask a number of questions uh, and you might wanna address certain things like why was the machine unguarded? Why was the guard removed? Why did workers use an unguarded machine in the first place? Was the supervisor aware of this at all? Uh, that goes back into you know, assigning some sort of corrective action at multiple levels, not only does the worker need more training or does the supervisor need more training, but 
Um, clearly the machine also needs to be carded. Uh, do you need more walkthrough inspections, more worker training, different type of guard? Uh, who will be responsible and accountable for any future compliance afterwards? These are all certain factors that you uh, need to know will influence the type of corrective actions that you evaluate. And once you've chosen the corrective actions, you'll need to implement them. And depending on the changes you need, you'll want to set up a timeline along with any interim steps. For example, uh, if training will be part of the solution, it will need to be scheduled and delivered and workers will need to be protected until they can get trained. Also, you need to assign responsibilities for implementing the changes and for evaluating if they're even effective. We mentioned that earlier. Uh, this evaluation could be over a period of days or even weeks or months. A change might seem effective at first, but over time, new problems uh, could arise. Although corrective measures should fix the hazard and prevent recurrence, uh, someone will need to make sure that the new process is consistently followed from that point forward. Now, when you're looking to assign accountability, you wanna consider who has the authority to make changes, who is going to monitor those changes and who will be authorized to address any problems or concerns. For example, if part of the problem was that a maintenance schedule was not followed, you might ask questions like, why was the maintenance schedule overlooked? Again, you wanna address not just the how, but also the why, so you have a better chance of pre preventing a similar situation from occurring in the future. In some cases, you might find that the corrective actions are not working as well as you hope they would. That might happen, uh, and that's okay, but you'll need to evaluate other corrective measures uh, as replacement. All right. Now, finally, over the next few slides, we're going to give some examples of possible motivational causes that you might encounter, uh, and we'll offer some ideas for how you might address them. Now, I've listed them here. And these are some of the human factors and motivations that we've been talking about. I do want to take just a moment here to remind everyone, too, that you can send in your questions at any time. Once we get through this section, we'll do a little wrap up and then we'll take your questions. So if you have any, you can start sending them in. Now, I've been saying that fixing root causes isn't easy, and these are not easy either. They won't be quick. Uh, for a lot of these, you're going to need buy-in for making changes. Entire books have been written on change management, but I want to sum this up by saying we call it getting buy-in because you need to sell your ideas. You need to convince others to buy them. In other words, to follow them, adopt them for their own. So basically, you need to lay out the reasons that a change is needed and show everyone the value of the change. If they see the value, they'll buy it. That means you'll want to anticipate likely objections and prepare to address those objections. So ideally, you can show how your change is going to make things better. Uh, that should include reducing the risk of injury, but maybe it makes things better in other ways as well. Maybe it saves money. All right. So one possible cause we want to talk about is just a lack of attention, a lack of focus. When we do the same task over and over, uh, it gets a little boring. Our minds tend to wander and suddenly we're not paying full attention to what we're doing. In fact, if you've ever been behind the wheel of the car and realized you didn't remember the last two or three seconds on the highway, you just blanked out, you've had that lack of attention. Well, that happens to people at work also. And that's maybe why the forklift driver said the pedestrian just appeared out of nowhere. Paying strict attention all day is tough when you're doing routine tasks that you've done many times before, or especially for duties like driving because handling a forklift requires you to focus on a bunch of different things at the same time. You could be focused on the wrong thing at the wrong moment. Now, in some cases, there could even be external distractions. Uh, we get questions like, well, can people listen to music while wearing hearing protection? Usually not a good idea because it's a distraction and the music could prevent someone from hearing a warning. As for how you address this, you know, there really is no easy way. Uh, all you can do is eliminate distractions as much as possible. Remind workers to give their full attention to what they're doing it, it, and put up reminders, whether it's posters, whatever you need. But yeah, there's no easy way to keep everyone focused. They just need to understand the consequences of what could go wrong. Kind of related to that is complacency. Now here I'm talking about people who know the rules, but ignore them. Uh, these are people who might claim that, well, hey, nothing bad happened, so what's the problem? Uh, 
goes back to the person talking on the cell phone while driving that I mentioned earlier. Uh, addressing complacency isn't easy either. Much like the lack of focus, it requires an ongoing effort with continual reminders. Actually, distracted driving is a good way to explain complacency to your workers. Now, here's what I suggest you could try telling them. Most likely, some of your employees have checked their phone or adjusted the radio while they're behind the wheel and suddenly realized they started to drift out of their lane. They divided their focus. They took their focus away from what they were doing. But since they didn't cause an accident, will they do it again a few days or a few weeks later? That's complacency. But the thing is, how do they feel when other drivers do that and the car next to them almost drifts into them? I bet they get angry. They get very frustrated when other drivers do this. So ask them the rhetorical question, why would you be doing something that you think is unsafe and unacceptable when other people do that same thing? Hopefully that drives the point home a little bit. You still get, need to get them to change habits. That's not easy and there's no simple solution again. Continual reminders are needed. Uh, you might have meetings on complacency, again, posting signs, and ongoing support from coworkers and supervisors can help. But this is not a short-term quick fix. All right, another root cause possibility is peer pressure to work faster and take shortcuts. To again, use the driving example, if you're on the freeway, uh, you'll notice that most everyone drives the speed limit and you probably go with the flow of traffic, even if it's a little bit over the speed limit. Well, this kind of peer pressure going along with the group, that can happen with safety in the workplace also. Now we've been hinting that supervisors could be a source of peer pressure, even if they aren't discouraging employees from working safely, you have to ask, are they actively encouraging people to be safe? Are they giving positive feedback and saying good job for following the rules? So how you handle peer pressure can vary, but fortunately, employers do have some control over the type of peer pressure. Now, a lot of it has to do with training on the importance of safety, and frankly, showing that safety is a value to the company, explaining the costs of accidents, all that usual. But really what it comes down to is not tolerating rule violations. And again, someone's got to hold the supervisors accountable for that as well. You might also have to work through a resistant to change. Now, how often have you heard this, right? We've done it this way for years and we've never had any sort of problem. Uh, well, getting workers to accept changes can be tough. And what we've learned uh, that might help is requesting a change rather than demanding or telling an employee that something's going to change. So rather than saying you need to do it this way, try saying we'd like you to try something new. Um, your senior workers will probably be, again, more likely to accept a request rather than a demand. Some employees will object, so you need to validate their concerns. For example, if an employee says, well, that's going to take longer, uh, you might agree that it could take longer, but that you want to try it anyway. Acknowledging the objection is much better than just dismissing it by saying something like, don't worry about that. Uh, you really need to validate that objection, not just dismiss the employee if uh, you're hoping that they're going to be um, more understanding of a, of a change. And finally, tell them that you'd really appreciate their help evaluating the new process. Again, this is really helpful. You might want to explain that after a month, you'd like feedback on how it works and how it could be improved, and then ask them, are you willing to help? Most employees should say yes, and depending on certain feedback, you and always try it. Well, let's make your suggested changes and then try for another month. Once they've been using the new process for a couple months, it should become a regular habit. Now we've mentioned the role that supervisors play a number of times since their day-to-day -day contact for employees. Supervisors can have a big impact on safety, but in many cases, both the workers and managers are usually given annual performance reviews based on productivity with little or no recognition for safety. Your executive team might have used the phrase, what gets measured gets done. If your company is measuring and rewarding productivity, but you're not recognizing or measuring safety, then you can guess where employees and supervisors will focus most of their attention. So again, there's a key, uh, there's a, a key objective here that you want to really reward 
uh, that, that safety measure as well as productivity. Maybe a supervisor tells employees to work faster, uh, but never recognize them for following safety rules or just doesn't enforce the rules at all. Supervisors really need to ensure that work gets done on time, but they should also measure and recognize any safety records uh, that their departments hold. Okay, we kind of gotten away a little bit from the investigation focus for a bit, but we think that knowing some of the possible root causes will help you conduct a better investigation. And we also want to point out that root causes may need to be addressed at the corporate level. Upper management may have a tendency to blame employees, which is something uh, we talked about earlier. Although employees must accept some responsibility, the root cause for their behavior may come from a higher level. If that is the case, then you'll need upper management support to change the safety culture. In the end, the purpose of investigating is to identify and address root causes so you can prevent future incidents. And prevention doesn't have to wait for an accident or even a near miss. You might already be aware of some motivational causes we discussed. Don't worry until an injury happens if you can start addressing some of those causes now. Like we mentioned earlier, preventing accidents is better than investigating any incidents. There may be conditions, behaviors, motivations, even a lack of enforcement or other factors that are currently a problem in some areas. If possible, start fixing those before an accident happens. All right, so prevention is key and analyzing incident trends is important. We've talked about looking at your incident rates, your near misses, your injuries, see if there's a pattern. So we want to give you one more opportunity to check out our Incident Center and Safety Management Suite. If you haven't elected your free trial, this is your chance. Again, this tool helps you track incidents, illnesses, near misses, property damage incidents, and much more. So you can look at your trends on interactive charts. You can auto-generate the OSHA 300 annual summary, 300A, and 301 reports. So I'm going to put this poll up one last time. And uh, please let us know your interests. And as a thank you, again, we will email you our OSHA 101 white paper. And with that, I see we have a bunch of questions come in. And we're going to start moving into those now while you take a moment to answer your poll. So what kind of questions do we have? Well, certainly no. Um, excellent. Great job to you both. And we thank you for your insights and expertise. Before we do start that Q&A, just want to remind everyone of the evaluation survey that we're asking you to complete. The survey will open in a different screen after this presentation. Your input's important because it'll help us improve, improve future webcasts, and we appreciate you taking that extra time to offer the feedback. Um, as we've mentioned, as, and as Edwin mentioned in the presentation, if you want to ask a question now, you just click the Q&A button at the bottom of the screen, type your question, and click the send button. Um, so with that, we will get going with those. Uh, this one asks, how do subjective musculoskeletal injury investigations differ from investigations where causes or more immediate ones are more visible? Okay, so you have a uh, MSD is something that often develops over time. And those are challenging, obviously, because uh, the contributing factors to a musculoskeletal injury may include on-the-job activities as well as off-the-job activities. So this is a challenge uh, compared to, you know, a discrete event. Like I said, a forklift accident, we used real obvious examples, a missing machine guard, something like that, because a single incident is a little different. But yeah, identifying MSDs, you're going to work with your uh your medical professionals too on, on the diagnosis and see if they have feedback on contributing factors. Uh, sometimes, and I know this may, this, this may be something some of you have dealt with, but employees will assume that their work duties were a factor and they may be a little reluctant to describe at home duties. Uh, I've talked to people who had, you know, back injuries, which they said was from at work, but the person had a home-based firewood business where they cut and split wood all weekend and and that you know contributes to back conditions as well so sorting that out isn't easy um really the incident investigation is tough because part of it might be dividing out what happened at work and what happened at home the best i can offer on this one actually is is to get a, a process for reporting these symptoms early so that the sooner you can start addressing the the incident the condition the sooner you can address it and start 
taking actions, whether it's restricting the person's work, whatever it might be, because we, we want to catch this before the person, say, needs back surgery. But yeah, those, those are tough. Those are really tough to, to dig through a much longer process because there is no single incident. There's no photographs of an incident. You're going to be doing an analysis of their on-the-job duties, how frequently they do these duties, and uh, what level of contribution they have. It's still going to be unique to the situation, so I can't give you a, a, a simple step-by-step. But yeah, do be aware that the duties the person has um, may differ, and even something they do for half an hour once a week could potentially be a contributor. So just identifying those is one of the challenges. That's the best I can offer. Next one, uh, the templates that you mentioned a short time ago, are those on the safety management suite? Some of the templates? Uh, I think if we, we mentioned the templates for some of the safety programs, yes, those are in safety management suite. We have um, uh, <clears throat> various workplace safety templates for um, all kinds of programs. We have audit checklists, over a hundred checklists of different things. And yeah, a lot of that is available. And again, it's, if you take your free access, there's, this is no obligation. So you should be able to check things out. And um, you can even send in questions that experts like Derek and I will answer. There's a, there's a dozen or so of us on just on our safety team who are waiting to answer your questions. If we didn't get to your question today. When you're taking photos of a scene, are there issues using a phone camera or would you recommend a separate camera be used? You know, I've heard different sides on that one. And if a phone camera is what you've got available, um, then, you know, if you need to get photos before things move, that's a good way to do it. Uh, but sometimes people like hard pictures as opposed to digital pictures because uh, actual film can't be modified, right? You can't, you can't, Photoshop anything. So I, we actually have a former safety managers on our team who said they kept even just dis disposable, cheap disposable cameras around uh, with the accident investigation kit to keep them with the supervisor. So if something happens, they've got a phone, they can, they've got a, uh, not a, a phone, a camera that can start taking photos and you can get actual print copy photos with negatives that you know can't be Photoshopped. Certainly nothing wrong with adding uh phones, phone type photographs, and even video, because you can get a lot more that way, a little action, uh, showing spacing, moving around. You can literally take a video as you walk around the scene and get all sides. So there's advantages of that as well. But um, I'm not saying you have to have print, but I have gotten quite a few safety people saying they really like the idea of the actual old style print photos for the Photoshop question issue. Next one is a two-parter says, uh, if possible, can you touch on any emerging special challenges or issues regarding accident incident investigations? And secondly, uh, could you offer any takeaway nuggets about nurturing safety culture? Um, emerging issues, I'm not sure what I could cover there and I'm gonna defer that one a little bit. But as for um, changing safety culture, I just know it's possible to change safety culture. And there, it depends on what your culture is. I know some people have a safety police culture and I know safety managers don't like that. Um, you may have a local culture. There's a lot of different options for improving it. One of the things we went through earlier was Derek talking about asking for help, asking someone to accept and help you evaluate a new process. We came up with that solution because we've got a lot of situations where maybe the safety manager has been with the company five years and you're talking to a worker who's been there 20 or 30 years and they push back. They say, you don't know the job. I've been doing this a lot longer than you since you know you were in high school kid and I'm not listening to you. So if you tell them that they need to change, they may push back. But if you say, can you help us evaluate this new process? Give us your feedback on it. Even if they're they're doing it reluctantly or thinking they're going to show you up and show you how it's going to fail, you can at least get them to implement it. And actually, usually changes are an improvement. And once it works out, um, once they've tried it for a month, it starts becoming a habit. So it's a way to, to get them in using a little psychology. Uh, another good one, frankly, we mentioned at the beginning that a lot of safety professionals have a personal incident that encouraged them to get into safety. You may have workers who have a personal situation, whether it was a friend or family member, at a, not at your company, even a different company, um, that makes them highly supportive of safety, will try to get them 
to be advocates for safety. If you can get someone on the team who can lead from the middle and support safety, coworkers will often take the the support better from a fellow team member than they will from the boss or from the safety manager. So if you can get that leading from the middle, uh, that safety advocate within the team to say, hey, this is important. I had a friend who lost two fingers reaching into a machine like this. Um, That can help drive home the importance of this. So there's a lot of small ways to do it. Uh, Just a few, and I just want to throw out those as a couple of tips, but yeah, there's a lot of good ways to do it. I will, let me add one more thing. I know I'm dragging this answer out, but one more thing I want to say is if you have supervisors who are resistant to safety, and I don't mean just people who feel like they don't have the teeth to enforce it. I know that's a problem sometimes where companies aren't firing people right now. And so supervisors say, I can give them all the reminders I want, but they're not, they're, we're never going to fire this person. But the worst thing a supervisor can do is to try to build camaraderie with the team by bad-mouthing policies. If a supervisor is saying things like, yeah, I know this, this new system is stupid and it seems like a waste of time, but we got to do it anyway. That's the worst possible way that a supervisor can build rapport within their team. If you've got them doing that, they need to stop that. They need to admit that 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 was wrong, that they shouldn't have done that. They need to support policies. I know as a manager, you have to support policies you don't agree with, but you still have to try and look for the silver lining and be positive about them. So if if your supervisors are commiserating with the employees, uh, they're really causing damage far beyond uh, what just a, a coworker, uh, an employee grumbling about that would cause. So, so really it depends on your problem, but yeah, there's a lot of possible solutions. Next one says there's a few different investigation techniques such as totem pole, fishbone, domino, et cetera. Do you find that one works better in some cases as opposed to others? Well, some will work better in some cases as opposed to others. Um, I know like the fishbone or the totem pole, depending on uh, the, the line that you're following, you know, the line of clues that you're following. And I can't, I'm not going to go through this. I mean, there's books written on these and articles written on, on whether particular methods are suitable for particular situations, but um, it it may depend on the complexity of the issue and how many other factors are involved. So I know some, some of those analysis processes do work better for certain situations than others, but uh, I'm not going to give, I'm not going to attempt to do a, a, a pros and cons of each right here, but yeah, some of them will work better than others. So don't think it's a one size fits all. That is a good point. Any recommendations you have on getting other leaders and managers to speak the same language, so to speak, and help with having employees become more engaged by holding employees and themselves accountable? Uh, well, there's Getting everyone to speak the same language depends. If you're working your way up the chain, uh, we often, safety people think in terms of compliance and hazards, but upper management may think in terms of risk. And risk and hazard are not the same thing. A hazard is a condition or action that could cause a problem. Risk adds the likelihood that something could happen. So they think in terms of risk, like financial risk and and, uh, computer security risk. So we need to consider the likelihood. So if you can frame as a safety manager, if you can frame things in terms, not just of hazards and compliance and OSHA regulations, but in terms of risk, liability, potential for injury and seriousness of the injury, you may be speaking their language more. If you're working the way down Uh, Getting the buy-in through things like a safety advocate, someone who leads from the middle is a good option. Uh, Again, there's other options out there, but ask your people, you know, just take an informal poll of things like, who do you think is responsible for safety in this workplace? And if all of your employees say, well, you are, you're the safety manager, then you have a problem. What you want them saying is we all are. All of us are responsible for safety. At one of an event similar to this, I, I did talk to one guy who said, you know, if I'd asked my people five years ago, who's responsible for safety, they would have said, you are, you're the safety manager. But he said today, they, they answer, we all are. So it is possible to get that change, get that awareness up. But it, again, it's not a fast change, but you can get people to understand that they're all responsible for safety. Well, as we're getting low on time, guys, uh, just any final thoughts or or things that may have been left unsaid that you'd like our attendees to know? I feel like I got a lot in there, and I I hope this was valuable. Again, I know there's a lot of different things in here, and I'm trying to give a few tips, 
but yeah, there's a lot of different angles and approaches. Um, and I, I hope some of this was helpful. Well, again, uh, thank you both. Unfortunately, we have run out of time. I'm sorry that we didn't get to everyone's questions, but all today's unanswered questions will be forwarded on to our speakers. Uh, once again, we hope you take the time to fill out the evaluation survey on your screen and give us your feedback. Uh, that ends today's Safety and Health web Magazine webcast. We'd like to thank Edwin Zaleski, Derek Plowden, everyone at JJ Keller, and all of you who listened in. And on another note, this marks our final live event of 2021. And just want to say we look forward to having you all along for many more insightful presentations in the new year. Thanks and have a great day.